0: Hello, I'm Fern Cotton, and this is Happy Place, our cosy sanctuary away from the commotion of the outside world. Today, a wonderfully joyful man from one of the happiest countries in the world. It's Mike Viking.
1: We are very good at looking towards the future for happiness. When we ask people, how happy do you feel today, or how satisfied are you with life today? And we also ask them, how happy do you expect to be five years from now? Universally, we see most people expect to be happier in the future than they are today, which is good. It's great to have a sense of optimism, but we shouldn't you know, let go of the happiness we can experience today just because we are anticipating a happier future.
0: Of everyone on the planet, Mike is probably the most qualified to talk on a podcast called Happy Place because he's the CEO of the Happiness Research Institute, which is based in Denmark. Mike and his colleagues spend their time digging deep into how individuals can cultivate happiness on a personal level. But it was also really interesting to hear about the real difference it can make on a societal level when policymakers engage with the happiness of their country. Game changing. It took a moment for Mike to get his headphones sorted. That's all right. He's a happiness expert, not a tech expert, but I'm so looking forward to you hearing the chat we eventually managed to have. And now, here's the show. Hey, Mike!
1: Hi, Fern, am I pronouncing it correctly that's how
0: you pronounce it it's got lots of extra weird letters that do not need to be in there they're utterly confusing but there we go listen
1: my name spelled in a weird way born in the late (laughs) 70s my mom thought i should be called mike but spelled in a danish way
0: Wow, I like it. I'm into it. My mum just stuck an E on the end and an A in the middle that do not have any relevance whatsoever. (laughs) But now we've got over that hurdle, let's chat about happiness. So um, thank you, first of all, for writing such beautiful books that have brought me a lot of joy over the years. I love the look of your books, the feel of them, they're full of brilliant, interesting facts. They're funny. I always laugh out loud at your <laughs> funny quips. They're brilliant. I thank love you. them. So thank, thank you. Thank you so much. So you, you're you the CEO of the Happiness Research Institute in Copenhagen. Correct. So you're looking at the cause and effects of happiness globally. And I guess a good place to start is... You know, there's lots of big questions I've got for you today, but happiness on the surface, I guess, looks subjective. It looks very different for everybody. But are there fundamentals, are there basics that are universal, that apply to everybody when it comes to happiness?
1: I would say so. I mean, for the past 10 years, I've been having conversations with people around the world about happiness or well-being or the good life. And the more conversations I have, whether it's with people in the US or the UK or China, the more I see how similar we are when it comes to what we want out of life. And I mean, you know, we we might be British or Danish, but we're first and foremost people. We, We all want our families to be happy and healthy. We all want an interesting, meaningful work, but we also want to have time enough to pursue our other interests and spend time with family and friends We all enjoy bringing good people together over good food. But of course there are differences. But I think there's much more that uh, unites us, that that sets us apart on that front.
0: Yeah, so maybe it's like the intricacies of of what we think make us happy are the bits that might divide us somewhat. But really there you've touched on sort of time is a big one, health – and other people and that that sort of dynamic and sense of community. And we'll we'll get onto all of that in a moment. But first of all, I kind of want to talk about, and I can only speak from the perspective of the Western modern world because that's all my experience is sort of limited to. But it seems like we get happiness so wrong. One of the myths around happiness is that it lives in the future only. Or sometimes we can use it for the past. But really, in our everyday lives, it's when I get... X, Y, Z, when I, you know, when I get the best job, when I meet the perfect partner, when I've done this task that I want out of the way, then I'll be happy. Why are we so reluctant to feel happiness in the moment?
1: I'm not sure we're reluctant, but I think you're, you're right that we're very good at raising the bar for what we feel we need in order to be happy. Or once we reach that milestone or that accomplishment or that goal we've set for ourselves, We might enjoy that for a while, but then we're really good at setting a new milestone. So I think, you know, we constantly raise the bar for what we feel we need in in order to be happy. And perhaps that's part of being human. Uh, You know, we are a species that always try to push the boundaries. You know, we look at a red barren planet in the distant universe and we think, you know, how do we get up there? (laughs) <laughs> uh, which is, is great for, for, you know, advances in technologies. It's not always good for happiness mm. because you're right. We, we are very good at looking towards the future for happiness. When we ask people, how happy do you feel today or how satisfied are you with life today? And we also ask them, how happy do you expect to be five years from now? Universally, we see most people expect to be happier in the future than they are today, which is good. it's great to have a sense of optimism, but we shouldn't you know let go of the happiness we can experience today just because we are anticipating a happier future.
0: It is part of that you know is part of human nature to then be so aware of our own lacking? Is that part of the problem that we're and maybe more so in this day and age we're so acutely aware of what's lacking rather than just what we've already got.
1: I think, I think that's a big part of it. And I think it's also an important element in the discussion around happiness when it comes to nations. Because being a Dane, I'm often confronted with Denmark and the other Nordic countries being some of the happiest countries in the world, um, which is true to a large extent. But I think it's very important to understand that it's one dimension of happiness that is measured, for instance, in, in the World Happiness Report. And it's a ranking and a position that is calculated on a national average. Um, So you could say, okay, Denmark or Finland or Norway are the happiest countries in the world. You could also turn it around and say, perhaps they are the least unhappy. And I think that's the key to understanding, uh, in part, uh, the high levels of happiness in the Nordic countries. Those countries are really good at reducing causes for unhappiness. And of course, that brings up the bottom, that brings up the average, and that's why we come out on top. But I think it also makes good sense for society to remove barriers for happiness and sort of try to to elevate people from a general point of view.
0: So when looking at those sort of global happiness stats, is it founded on circumstance rather than mindset? Because you're saying there, you know, the, the countries that you've just named that rank highest circumstantially have more of a chance to be happy. Or is this about culturally how we're brought up and the mindset that might be ubiquitous in the places that we live in?
1: I'm going to say both.
0: Okay. It's a combination. <laughs> and, actually,
1: and actually one additional thing. No, no I, think, I think it makes good sense to look at happiness the same way we look at health. So when we look at health, we know that there is a biological or genetic component, right? You, you, are, you are born predisposed for some diseases. I'm born predisposed for other diseases. So that affects how long you and I are going to live. But also where we live matters, Know, the quality of the healthcare in the UK, the quality of the healthcare in, in Denmark. Uh, are you based in London? I am, yeah. Yeah, so the, so the air pollution in London versus the air pollution in, in, in Copenhagen, that also matters. And then the choices you and I make on a daily basis, you know, diet, exercise, do we smoke? How much do we drink and so on? That also matters for our uh, life expectancy. So biology, genetics, circumstances, and then the choices we make on a daily basis. And I think we should apply the exact same perspective On happiness, because we know there is a biological or genetic component. We are born more or less happy. We can see that from twin studies. Identical twins have fairly similar happiness levels. But then there's also a country component. We can see that some countries are better at providing quality of life for people. It's it's unsurprising that the least happy countries currently are are countries like Afghanistan, Syria, for, for obvious reasons. But then also the choices you and I make on a daily basis. What do we do with the time we have? What do we focus on? What is our perspective in life? So yes, perspective mindset matters, but other things matter as well. We can't go to the people in, in Syria and say, listen, guys, you know, happiness is, is about perspective. Of course, there's external conditions that matters as well.
0: Well, because that's the big question, isn't it? It's been been so debated over the years, and I'm not sure what the outcome is, and maybe you'll be able to supply us with one, but how much autonomy we have over our own happiness. You know, how much of it is a choice? You've alluded to it obviously being a combination of different factors, but on a daily basis, do the most of us have more autonomy over it than we are led to believe?
1: I, I like to focus on what we can control. Yeah. And I mean, especially in these days, right? Um, there's a lot of things I cannot control that's going on in the world right now. I cannot control a global pandemic, but I can control what we're having for dinner tonight. I think we might be having salmon, by the way. <laughs> Good for uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> right? And and that is what I can control. I can control creating a nice dinner tonight for us. And and, and that is what I, I, I put my focus on. So so a, a stoic approach to happiness, embracing that there is not... Everything in this world that I can control, but I actually do have control over some things that actually matter to my everyday and my well-being levels.
0: So that's a that's a focus shift, isn't it? That's going, right, I can see what I'm in control of and what I'm not. And there's almost no point wasting your energy trying to control the things that you can't, because you'll end up feeling frustrated and probably worse. But put as much focus as you can on those elements of life that you do have agency over and really enjoy those is that part of the key to it then
1: to me it is um yeah I like that and I mean you've been working with this field also for a long time I think it's really interesting to see how this field of work influences your everyday life and and your perspective and the choices you make on a daily basis and I think that's one of the great things of working with happiness research that you cannot help Over time, being convinced by what you see in the data and the studies and the conversations you have with other people. That's a wonderful byproduct of of the field that we both share.
0: It is. Do Do you sometimes, you know, this is a funny question because of our interests, but do you ever feel that there's too much focus on happiness? I know, you know, my podcast is called happy place as well as the other work that I do. I like it because it has that loaded nature. You know, what is happiness? What does it mean? I love all the questioning around it. Do you ever feel that there should be more more focus on, I don't know, whether it's peace, contentment, or just the acceptance of all emotions, whether labelled positive or negative?
1: I'm fascinated by happiness because we can look at it from so many different angles. I mean, just in the past 10 minutes, we've talked about genetics, we've talked about policies, we've talked about mindset. We could talk about, you know, how do we design our cities, we could talk about, you know, history of happiness, how the perception of the good life evolved over time. That's what makes it exciting to me. But I think you're right, we should explore other emotions as well. I think you in the UK are, are leading in terms of exploring and embracing the importance of reducing loneliness. I, I remember you have a minister, or at least a hat. A minister of loneliness. There should be a loneliness research institute as well. There should be a connection research institute or a calm research institute. Happiness is one emotion that hopefully we as humans get to experience during our lifetime. But in any human life, there is going to be loneliness and heartbreak and failure and stress and worry. And that's part of the human experience. So we also look at stress and loneliness when, when we work with, with happiness. That's part of being human. And they also correlate from time to time. Uh, so that's also part of the work, I think.
0: How do you think happiness works? Because I've had lots of very interesting discussions about this over the years. And I still don't know how I feel about it. I don't know if I believe that happiness is ephemeral and it comes and then it dissipates. What,
1: sorry, Question. Sorry, ephemeral what what does that mean
0: ephemeral, like it just goes like it's not permanent there's no permanent oh, right, fixture, right. so the notion of it being you know transient, it will leave at some point, or when I spoke to Rhonda Byrne, who wrote the secret, who I love, her thinking is our resting state is happiness, that is our natural state, and other things come in like anger, sadness. And if we truly embrace them and accept them, they go and we then return to happiness. So they're quite conflicting, really, either that happiness comes and then it buggers off again or that we are always happy, but stuff distracts us and gets in the way. Hmm. Do you have a feeling on that?
1: (laughs) First of all, always good to learn new words. (laughs) So, I, I, as, <laughs> well, same for I, me. As,
0: I'm still learning them.
1: <laughs> no, and, and as, you, as you might pick up, you know, English is not my, my first language. Uh, I,
0: your English is exceptional. But, I've heard you say this before. Your English is, do you know what my Danish is? Non-existent. But, so you do not need to comment on your perfect English. Well, there, perfect. there are
1: words uh, that I'm, I'm, I'm not familiar with. And I, I, <laughs> I, I also joke that, you know, I've seen videos when I speak Danish and then speak English. And I noticed that when I speak English, I concentrate more and then I look grumpy, which is bad <laughs> when you're a happiness researcher. But, but to, We're fine with but, that. But the, the question is, do we need to pick one or the other? Right, true. Can we say that happiness is both? And I think when we talk about happiness, we, we need to just sort of embrace that happiness is a wide, complex term. I think it is that fleeting emotion where we experience that sort of elated state a newborn baby or finishing a marathon but i think there's also that other side of having a profound satisfaction with life and having a sense of a lot of meaning and purpose in life and i don't think that is etheric
0: ephemeral
1: ephemeral so close
0: (laughs) 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 i think i only learned it about three years ago so i wouldn't worry okay Okay. (laughs) you have to teach me some Danish. Well, I know a few Danish words from your books, but you have to teach me some more as well. Right. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I love, you know, and I like that it doesn't have to be answered. I love that it can be both because you're right, happiness, that's why I guess you and I and many others are so fascinated by the concept of it and right. and also about how it does, you know, it feels like it can slip through your fingers. Like, it's, it's going, it's going. Like, it's, it's such a, <laughs> a bizarre, a bizarre feeling. Yeah. And when it's not around, when we are feeling absent of happiness, like we're lacking in happiness, often our inclination is to instantly blame something, you know, a circumstance, a person. I'm really unhappy because of you, or I'm so unhappy because of this thing that's going on. Do you think that is the case? Or do you think there is always a sub-level where something else is going on internally that is deeper-rooted, that is perhaps driven by a a limiting self-belief or something from the past, What what are your thoughts on that? Is there always a sort of subterranean level of something else going on or are these reasons that we're using as blame valid?
1: Again, I think it it depends on on which factors we're looking at. If you're living in a a country with with civil war, obviously there are external conditions uh, that are to blame for, for your unhappiness. And I think, unfortunately, also as humans, we are very good at paying attention to things that doesn't work and the barriers and what we would like to improve and i think we can become better at focusing on everything we have that we can be grateful for and also instead of looking 5 years ahead and thinking how can i be happier 5 years from now then looking back and saying okay am i actually happier today than than i was a year ago or 5 years ago and if the answer is 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 yes then you know we should celebrate that and, and, and be happy with that. Mm. Um, but also just, just to add a few words to, to what we talked about before, the, the sort of definition of happiness or the, the perception of happiness, is it the elusive ethereal? Ephemeral. <laughs> Ephemeral. <laughs> Ephemeral version or, or the sort of profound, deep uh, sort of satisfaction with life. I don't think that is unique for the happiness feeling, I think that is also the, the case for a lot of other subjective emotions. Um, stress can also be different things for, for different people. Um, loneliness is also different things. It's me wanting to go out on a Friday night, not having anybody to call, but it's also me being in a social setting, dinner party, and feeling that I'm not really connecting with, with people there. Both are lonely feelings, but are, 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 are yet different. And I think that's, that's just the way it is. Um, loneliness, stress, anxiety, depression are wide umbrella subjective terms. And so is happiness. But it doesn't mean that we can't try to understand what it is and how to create good conditions for that emotion to flourish.
0: Absolutely.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
0: My take on what your bo- one of your books would be called, I would pronounce it Licky, but I'm imagining it's
1: Lugger. Yes, you could. you can oh, go. Oh no,
0: that was a no. Just be honest with me.
1: <laughs> what you, is it? No, no, it, it was, I would say this, it was almost a Swedish pronunciation of Danish. Okay. Yeah, that's next level. <laughs> that's, very that's what good. going for. So, so I pronounced it, we pronounced it "luka."
0: Luka. Yeah. Oh, okay. Luka. Right. I feel really good now. I know how to
1: pronounce it. That's great. That's
0: my first <laughs> Danish word. So, Very good.
1: Also for clearing your throat. Yeah. Looker. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> so in, in that particular book, you talk about the connection between happiness and freedom. And that is something that, of course, at the moment is on all of our minds because we've quite literally had it stripped away in parts of the world more than others. But things that were a given before have not been over the last year. And I wonder if that is one of the main factors why we've really struggled this last 12 months is just that lack of freedom.
1: I think it's definitely part of it. And also that lack of freedom has meant that a lot of us have experienced new levels of loneliness and more people have experienced loneliness than than we've seen before. You know, whether we talk about happiness being that elusive feeling or that sense of purpose or meaning in life or overall satisfaction with life we see connections, we see relationships being a key driver of all those dimensions. So not being able to see our loved ones, our family and friends, and and having our freedom reduced, obviously have had a negative impact on people. But I think we see freedom matters. And and when we look at a country level, obviously, lower levels of freedom means lower levels of happiness. But we also see that at an individual level. If you feel High level of freedom. If there is equality between men and women in a society, if you feel you're able to choose the course in life that you desire, then of course it's, it's good for well-being. I think there is a special condition with the situation we've been in this year, and that is that we've been in it together. I think to some extent it's been easier to endure that we have had constraints on our freedom because the entire world has been under that circumstance. You know, imagine if, if it was just people in London or people in the UK or people in Denmark that were uh, confined as we've been in the past year and the entire world were still going to Spain for holidays yeah. and New York and going to fancy restaurants and whatnot, it would have been difficult for Denmark mm. to look at that.
0: Without <laughs> right? doubt. so,
1: so, so and, and I think that's also one of the key patterns in, in happiness research, that social comparisons matter, that we also are quite inclined to judge the situation we are in and what we're happy with and satisfied with based on what we see around us, based on our reference group. And we can see that, for example, when it comes to salary levels, you know whether I'm satisfied with 40,000 a month, let's say Danish krona, depends on whether my reference groups make 30 or 50,000. Mm. And so we can see relative income sometimes matter more than, than absolute income. And I think that is also an element in, in the past year's uh, situation that we felt that okay everybody's been in this situation everybody's been worried about their loved ones and their health and the you know economy and nobody's been able to go to to parties and to restaurants and see their friends and see their family and perhaps that has made it a little bit easier to endure.
0: Mm. Well let's look at that notion of comparison there because you say you know we look at what's relative to us in our own social circles or even it might be sort of, you know, nationally looking at how you fit into the picture. And I do sometimes wonder if it's harder to be happy today in this weird modern world because of how much we use comparison. And a whole host of other things like the speed that we're living at um the way that now we have these sort of nuclear families rather than having you know whole communities help raise children i know there's some change in parts of the world with that but we're still very much living under those sorts of constraints and just how we're using technology do you think it is harder to be happier today
1: I think some things makes it harder and obviously some things makes it easier. Of course, we have a lot of you know, healthcare technologies and, and whatnot uh, that makes it easier. I think when we look at social media, it very much depends how we use social media, uh, whether it impacts us in a positive and whether it impacts us in a negative way. If we use social media, we, we've done a couple of studies on this at the Happiness Research Institute, if we use social media to be social, to organize social events, to stay in touch with loved ones across the globe, then it's good for well-being. But if we use social media, as you described, to perhaps compare ourselves to other people and to get exposed to a constant bombardment of great news that happens for everybody else, then it can become a tough contrast to compare our life up against. And then it might have a negative effect. So it's a tool like everything else, that can be used for good and bad. But I think it's very good to be aware of the the social comparison effect that, that social media might have on us.
0: It kind of goes back to what you were saying before about looking at what you've got control over and what you haven't. You know, we haven't got control over the fact that social media exists, but we have got control over how we use it and what we choose right. to follow. And I guess that requires a bit of awareness to go, is this making me feel good? No, maybe I should change the way I'm using it. And it sounds so simple, but we all get sucked into forgetting we've got the choice.
1: You're absolutely right. And there's an additional element in it that what is the norm? Yeah. And, 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 and in the little book of, of Luke, if, if you read that, then, then you, I think it's that book, I, I talk about the, the boarding school with the Danish kids that have this concept of taking the smartphones and the the devices from the kids when they first arrive on the first semester. So the kids are 14 to 16 and stay at the school. And then the kids are allowed to have one hour per day where they can use their phones and go on Instagram and TikTok and whatever they're called nowadays. Mm -hmm. When you say nowadays, you you instantly gain 10 years. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm, I'm aware of that. I'm in that territory. I'm
0: in that territory. (laughs) I'm
1: I'm turning 43 on Saturday. So I'm I'm allowed to use that. Happy birthday. So one hour per day, they can be on, on Instagram, but for 23 hours without their phones. And then after six months, it's put to a vote among the students. Should we continue with this setup or should everybody get their phone back? And I think it's interesting interesting to see 80% of the kids or the students vote to keep the system in place because they experience, okay, if none of us have our phone, it's actually really fun and we connect and we do stuff together. But of course, if you're the only one saying, I'm not going to use my phone at the boarding school and everybody's using theirs, perhaps less fun.
0: Yeah, and it right? takes a lot of courage to be that person to say, I'm going to do things differently. We know that. That's not an yeah. easy route to take. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, it is, It's looking at what has become the norm because, of course, a lot of these things weren't normal 10, 20 years ago, but they're, they're everywhere now. And, and we have to sort of remember not only our own agency, but also that we can create new communities within the frameworks that we live in to help everybody out, really. And one of them we all know, I'm sure, is to use our phones less get off your phones like we all know that I'm I have to treat myself like a child and turn it off at night so I'm not even tempted and I don't turn it on until the kids have had their breakfast and then I'm like now I'm allowed on it otherwise I'd be on we all would we'd be on all the time it's so highly addictive something else that has just sprung to mind from your book Luca Nailed it. getting there. Okay, I'm nearly there. Is how, again, we may have got this wrong with thinking that happiness is always the effect of something rather than the cause. But you talk about, in that particular book, the fact that friendliness, which is a cause, creates happiness. So we perhaps got to stop looking at happiness being the end result, the effect, but it can actually lie in the cause. I thought that was very interesting.
1: Yeah, and, and we actually see the positive side effects or benefits or effects of happiness on many different fronts, which is also something policymakers should be very interested in. It makes good sense for them to actually create happier citizens because we can see they're more likely to be higher income earners later in life. Um, they're less likely to go to hospital in the following 12 months. Um, they're more likely to you know, show acts of kindness. So, so a lot of the things we would like out of our fellow citizens are actually something that could perhaps be derived from, from creating happier citizens. Mm. But perhaps we should also talk a little bit about how we study happiness, because it is a tricky uh, matter, right? When we try and, and, and measure happiness, we ask questions about how happy people feel, how satisfied they are with life and different emotions and so on. And then we like to follow large groups of people over time. So we could follow you and all your listeners and 10,000 people from the UK over the next 10 years, because over the next 10 years a lot of things are going to happen to to those people. People get married and people have kids and you know move outside of London, move to London, and and a lot of things happen. And if we ask them every year how satisfied they are with life, then we start to see what actually happens when people get married or get divorced or lose their job or double their income. and and sort of get the average effect on happiness from these different life events. So that is why we can sometimes understand what is the cause and what is the effect of some of these things.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. And I guess a lot of the time when you're tracking stuff like that, one outcome might be that any sort of change for humans, whether it seems positive or negative, is often tricky. So there might be moments where You don't feel so happy, even if you are progressing, because I do think that as humans, we all just struggle with change. We like to be really cosy, just sticking with what we know. And any kind of life change, which is inevitable, is therefore quite hard.
1: Hard, but perhaps also more memorable.
0: Let's talk about memories. I want to talk about that book. Oh, I loved that book, The Art (laughs) of Making Memories. It's such a beautiful book, and it got me thinking so much about my own life and bits of my life that I've loved looking back at nostalgically and bits that I've really tried to bury. And there's so much in that book that I want to discuss. First of all, okay, so we know that there's been so much talk about being present in the moment. You know, one of the leading thought leaders on this being Eckhart Tolle who professes that if you're in the moment, you can reduce stress, anxiety, anger. You're just in the now where you're safe. You're, you're not on fight or flight mode, et cetera. But your book at times somewhat contradicts that, saying, you know, well, actually, I've written a line down and you say memories are the cornerstone of our identity and also sets us free from the limitations of the present moment. So let's talk about nostalgia and how that can help with our general happiness. How does it help?
1: I think it's especially been the case in the past year uh, where we've been, again, constrained in our freedom and our ability to do things we've been able to retrieve the happy experiences we've had in the past and get some joy and some happiness out of that. Um, we haven't been able to to travel uh, for the past year, but I can still revisit um, the trip I had to uh, Venice with my girlfriend or the time I went to the top of Mount Fuji with my two friends uh, 10 years ago. I can still get enjoyment out of that. And it is you know, a cornerstone of our identity because it's part of my life story. It's part of my narrative. It's part of the stories I tell myself and I tell other people. But what we could also see is that people who are able to form a positive narrative about their life are also happier today. So that's what I wanted to do with the book. I wanted to help people create more happy memories and also be able to retrieve the happy memories they have had in the past. And, I really enjoyed writing the book. First of all, it was really fun for me also to dive back into my own uh, memories. But I, I, I've been really amazed with how wonderful and complex our memory is. And I think the biggest sort of takeaway and aha moment for me in, in writing the book was coming to an understanding that there is actually a lot we can do to influence what you and I and our family and friends remember in the future. So, so thinking of ourselves as, as memory architects, I think is really cool. Mm. And as, as, as you know, one of the, the chapters in, in the book is attention, which is the very sort of foundation of memory. And, and I was talking to a, a Polish lady who had read the book, and that chapter reminded her of something her mother did 30 years ago. So at that time, this, this lady was about eight or 10 years old, and she was having dinner with her mother and her sister, and they're having a good time. They're laughing. They're feeling happy. And then at one point that evening, her mother said to her, I hope you remember this moment and here we are 30 years later she still remembers that moment because yeah. another made her pay attention to it and i think that's such a great example it's a really powerful tool that of course can also be overused right because if you every time you sit down with your friends say i hope you remember this moment <laughs> that's going to get annoying they, they're going to tell you to <laughs> shut up on day 2 right uh, but but used every once in a while it's it's mm. it's really powerful and yeah so i, I was just fascinated with memory and I mean, the past year has been very memorable. You and I are going to remember 2020, 30 years from now. 2018, I'm not sure. But 2020, that is going to stick.
0: And is this, again, a matter of um, where we focus our attention and energies? Because there will be, for everybody, some really lovely memories, whether it's right back in childhood or more recently. And, of course, there'll be memories that are deeply painful and will at times become unfortunate cornerstones of our identity that end up being reductive and limiting as to who we think we are in the world or what we can achieve. So is this, again, a matter of where we focus our attention and put them on the positive memories rather than the negative?
1: I think so, because I think in in, you know, in any human life and in my life, I could pick 20 episodes and 20 memories that makes me a talented wonderful, kind person, and I can pick 20 memories that makes me the exact opposite. I should remember both, but I think it's really, really important that that we don't only harvest all the bad experiences that we've, that we've had in the past and let them define us.
0: Absolutely. Well, let's talk about the other word that I don't know how to pronounce. huga Okay, hygge. Um Which... <laughs> I learned so much about from reading your book and I just love the whole concept. It suits me just to a T because I am although I adore communicating I'm a, I'm an introvert. I like I'm a real homebody. I love being at home more than anything. I like making my home feel cozy and like my sanctuary. It's a big part of who I am. So I enjoyed every second of reading this book and It was interesting to learn, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the word derives from an old Danish word that relates to well-being. And this to me was so wonderful because well-being in the modern world can often be, again, really misconstrued and relate to things that are more really about suffering. Like you've got to drink a vat of celery juice or you've got to go to a hot yoga thing for like two hours or whatever it might be. And your perception... The Danish perception of, of well-being is cake, coffee, woolly jumpers, get some candles out. That is genius. That, to me, is where well-being is at. I love it. It's,
1: it's interesting. Thank you. It's interesting you call it genius. I call it sort of very simple common sense. <laughs> well, true. Um, but I think, I think, you know, it, it's, it's been really fun to see the world embrace hygge. And, I mean, you have practiced hygge. I can hear your entire life before you know there was a, you knew there was a word called hygge. And I think that's also why it, it it became so popular the concept or the word because hygge happens everywhere. But now the world has a word to describe that situation. And I think it's it's, you know, it's the art of creating a nice atmosphere and sort of trying to find simple pleasures and simple happiness in your everyday life. And again coming back to what we can control. And w- one of my favorite stories from, from readers was um, a French uh, mother who wrote me that again, I've been having hugo all my life she wrote and she didn't know there was a word for it and she, she wrote, I could have had an afternoon with my two kids and we would have been on the sofa with some tea and some biscuits and some blankets and I would have called that a lazy afternoon now I call it a hugly afternoon yeah I think great I love that
0: uh,
1: so, so, love so that. We, we basically just removed the guilt from what should be yes. a nice What's this guilt thing about? Why
0: does happiness so often come with guilt? I mean, I don't want to out my producer Anushka, but we had this chat just before we started where we were talking about both being utterly grateful for having been able to work throughout the pandemic. I feel I felt grateful every day because people very close to me, my husband, my brother have had, you know, everything stripped away work wise because they work in the live music industry. And it's been rough and for so many of our friends. So I, I have felt unbelievably grateful every day. But you do feel a sense of guilt creeping in like, oh God, I feel a bit guilty because I know other people are having a really shit time. Right. Why does happiness sometimes get piggybacked by guilt? It's such a strange one. We feel bad because other people are suffering and we feel happy.
1: Maybe it's it has to do with, with what we earlier thought that happiness was reserved for. And that was the afterlife. That we had to endure misery in this life, How so we can achieve happiness in the afterlife.
0: This is an ancestral hangover we're carrying here, <laughs> isn't it? It's an ancestral hangover perhaps, of guilt I mean, from people that fully believed in the after. Or maybe, maybe you still do believe in the afterlife, but that we're carrying a lot of stuff. A, there. a lot
1: of us are, are taught, perhaps, that you know, what is fun and pleasurable and good feels good is morally wrong.
0: Mm. Or we have to work for it or struggle for it. And Hooger is the opposite. You relax into happiness. You just get some blimming candles and a blanket and you relax into happiness rather than, I've got to strive and fight for happiness. I fall into this one all the time. I think, I'm really loving my job, but I need to work harder so it doesn't slip away. I need to keep striving so that I keep getting to do this rather than feeling hopeful that it might just stick around.
1: And also, let, let's so let, and, and, and try and build some enjoyment into our everyday lives. And I think that's also what hygge is about. And yes, that is why we eat a lot of cake. I mean, <laughs> I come from a country known for, for pastry, uh, <laughs> right? Heaven. Um, we use a lot of candles. We, I, I also put that in the book. We, we use twice as many candles as number two in Europe because candles wow. give off a nice, soft, warm Light. And it affects the atmosphere. So there was a, a Canadian guy who had read the little book of Hugo, and because of the focus on candles and lighting, he went out and he bought candelabras. So where you right? Yeah. And and, and he started to light candles for dinner at home uh, with his family, and um, they have three teenage sons. So when he started to light the candles, the boys they you know, got in his face. You know, Dad. What's going on with the candles? You know, should we leave? <laughs> Do you want to have some romantic time with mom? Uh, but then he says, over time, it actually became the boys that started to light the candles for dinner. And most important, he says, now our family dinners, they last 20 minutes longer because the candles change the atmosphere around the table, puts the boys in a storytelling mood. They sit down, they <laughs> sip their wine, they talk about the day, which I think is great.
0: It's beautiful there's also a sense of ritual behind that as well. A sense of ceremony. It's gorgeous.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And um, of course, I don't think candles are going to save the world. But, <laughs> but I like things that are simple. I like mm. that if you put a candle on the table, you can actually change how a family interact. That's what I want to to focus on. I'm 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 born lazy. I'm I'm looking for easy, simple.
0: Solutions. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's great because we have a similar thing here where my husband has always been big on candles because his late mum was really into setting a mood and a scene with lighting. Nothing fancy, you know, lamps with scarves over or candles or whatever. So every night when we have dinner, he he lights a candle. And you know, even when it's still totally light outside, it just adds something. And my son who's eight loves it because he's, you know, watching the flame flickering and it just adds another dimension. And there is that element of ceremony that I think we've lost because we're rushing and we're rushing through everything and marking the like start of something with a moment. And also that adds to like memory making and tradition and following things through generations. It's all so beautiful and it's all so cosy. And there's, there's a line you wrote in the book that I had to jot down because, again, I thought it was so gorgeous. And the sentiment of hygge being the cosiness of the soul. Oh, like I feel happy just saying that sentence. (laughs) It's so beautiful. And, again, we forget to nurture that part of ourselves. We're like, is my mental health okay? Am I physically feeling fit and well? But what about that other bit? I've talked about this in other episodes of the podcast, this series. What about that other bit? You know what about that other bit of you that isn't linked to your head or your body that is just sort of the feeling and the connection to everything we we've forgotten about that
1: and i think we i mean i shouldn't because i have no skills in it as we established earlier <laughs> but 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 somebody needs to to get a hoogie tracker on their their iphone right mm. so because i think we we like things that are quantifiable right and and i think we have a tendency to let numbers take up a lot of weight in when we make decisions you know job a is better than job b because job a pays 30000 and job b pays 20 i watch my phone in terms of how many steps i take per day but where does it track that i on monday had time to have dinner with one of my friends in the Copenhagen sunshine, which is rare, by the way. <laughs> um, I, I can store that as a, as, as a happy memory, but it, it's, it's, I have other things that makes me focus on what is quantifiable.
0: Yeah, so
1: true. So, yeah, it, it, it's interesting. And, and, and I think that's why perhaps Danes are now famous for Hugo and, and, and we see hygge as part of our sort of national identity because we talk about it a lot. Earlier we talked about everybody has been practicing hygge before they knew the word. Danes have had the word for the past 200 years and we talk about it constantly. Mm. And we say when we meet each other, you know, hoogly to see you. And last Friday was really hygge and come over <laughs> on Saturday and we'll have a hygge time. Hoogly is such a
0: great word, Hoogly. I mean, That's
1: fantastic. But, and and, and, and I, I remember at one time we had an intern at the institute from the Faroe Island, which is part of the Danish community. And she said, you know, we have Hygge in the Faroe Islands as well. But you, Danes, you have to point it out every time you experience it. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great thing. And she's right.
0: It's so interesting that you talked about there, us trying to quantify everything and give that meaning, because that is going back to the middle of our conversation. But that is possibly why and when we are misusing social media, is when that takes precedence over, The experience. And again, tying in the memory making element here, when we're putting a picture on Instagram, you know, not all of us do this, but some of the time you're you spend so long. It could be I've seen people do this on holiday and sort of I've been, you know, sort of having to peek between my fingers because I can't quite believe what I'm seeing. But you can see people spending half an hour trying to take one photo for Instagram. And that picture is going to look so amazing on Instagram. It's going to get so many likes, and we can quantify how popular that picture Uh, is. But you have missed the memory. You didn't make the memory because you weren't in, you didn't enjoy it. You just spent loads of time looking at your phone. I remember I saw one girl doing it on this cliff face in Ibiza one summer, and I was like, what is going on here? And I've done it to a lesser extent with things that I've been trying to do to put something across on Instagram for work or whatever. And I'm like, did I even enjoy that bit? Like what was happening there? But that seems to be the big discord that we're not experiencing the bit that we're showing everybody. It's so weird.
1: I'm having real concerns in terms of how difficult it must be to be a teenager and a kid nowadays, compared to when I was growing up. You know, I didn't know of all the parties I was missing. Nope. I did know I'm probably not the most popular guy in school. I was a nerd. I was not good at sports, not good at music, not good at things that matters when you're in high school. But today, I mean, I think it's a completely different level in terms of the pressure on young people. And in terms of the unfortunate ability they have to compare themselves to each other. So we should we should end on something more uplifting.
0: We really should. We have to I know like we can we can state our worry and then we can move back to eating cakes and drinking coffee right. and wearing fluffy jumpers and embracing all of that stuff that is essentially perhaps going back to the start of our conversation, the simple things that we know fundamentally are global, are accessible to everybody, which are lighting a candle or experiencing an intimate setting with a few people that you really, really like, hopefully now moving forward, that's even more accessible to everybody and not placing our happiness in the future, perhaps the unattainable or certainly the extraordinary where there are no guarantees.
1: Right. Embracing, you know, happiness today and and, and learning from that French mother we talked about before, not finding guilt in having a lovely afternoon where she enjoys life with her two kids, you know, we make a lot of a to-do list of all the accomplishments we we have to do and what we have to solve but you know i think we should make sure we also put in uh, a little hygge time for for us uh, either on a, a daily or on a weekly basis i should I, after this interview i'm going to go out and get some some danish pastry there's yes! some, there's a bakery around the corner that makes honestly the best cinnamon buns in in copenhagen
0: Oh, my God. My son is obsessed with cinnamon buns. It's his favourite snack. I'm going to buy my kids cinnamon buns today for after school. And I'm going to now, after this, I've only got a couple more things to do. So before I go on the school run, I'm going to do something super cosy, even if it is just light a candle. That's how I'm going to mark my hygge moment. Mike, what a joy talking to you. I'm so glad that we got to, to chat today and, and have this conversation. And I, again, I love your books. They are utterly gorgeous through and through. So thank you for writing them. And um, keep doing what you're doing. It's brilliant.
1: Thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me.
0: No more feeling guilty for being happy. How weird are we that we do that? And thank you for Mike for saying so. He literally wrote the book on happiness, so I'm going to take that. Thank you very much, Mike. A massive thank you, Mike, for your time. You're brilliant. I hope that you enjoyed your cinnamon bun. If all of that's got you thinking about where happiness fits into your own personal cocktail of emotions, do go back and listen to Rhonda Burns' episode. Oh, you know how much I love Rhonda. Go and listen to Rhonda's episode. It will change your life. I don't say that lightly. She talks about happiness being our default state, which seems impossible, but I promise you it's true. Please go listen. Always good to think about things with a different perspective. Another wonderful guest will be here next week to get you thinking. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you know when that episode is available. Until then, thank you so much, Mike. To the producer, Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio, and I always save the best till last, to you, you blimmin' lovely lot. Thank you so much. I'll see you soon.